As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. This season, we're taking a journey through one branch of my own family tree to explore what happens when a group of people leave the only land they've ever known for the promise of salvation and eternal life in heaven. If you've just discovered the podcast and haven't listened to the earlier episodes in the season, I highly suggest you go back and listen to them first, as each episode in this season builds on the one before. So far, we've taken a tour through the religious landscape in America in the early 1800s that bred a variety of new belief systems to crop up, including Mormonism, before heading back to ancient Europe to see how their belief systems morphed from worshiping multiple gods to only one. We've seen how time and time again, people have handed their personal agency and sovereignty over to someone outside of themselves. The seer or savior or god of choice may change, but the human race has for thousands of years been fixated on whether or not there is life after death, and have lived their lives according to a set of values that someone tells them is necessary to get to the good place and avoid the bad one. That set of values has changed over the generations as well. We sacrificed animals and even people for a long time, until the Christians found that barbaric and told us that Jesus died so no one else has to. But it was the Christians, and also the Vikings, and countless other groups around the world who believed in some kind of manifest destiny, where it was perfectly acceptable to sacrifice people indigenous to a land they wanted to take for themselves, in the name of God, of course. Direct revelation through the use of plant medicine was the standard for understanding the meaning of life in many parts of the world until organized religions realized there was no use for them if people could talk to God for themselves. So that was outlawed as well. But against what seemed to be a constantly changing religious landscape in Europe, one thing stayed relatively constant, the people's connection to the land. Decade after decade, one generation after the other, for thousands of years, people in Europe and especially Scandinavia lived in rural villages where, as a group, they provided for themselves and for their community. Their lives and deaths were dependent on the weather, their animals, and each other. Until suddenly everything changed. And that's what we'll be exploring in today's episode. Who were my family members in Sweden, and what were their lives like when the Mormon missionaries arrived in their village? But first, let me just say, if this season is inspiring you to go deeper on your own journey with your ancestors and the spirits of the land, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earthenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. 
I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. Okay, so you may remember that the very first night that I drank a tea made from Amanita Muscaria, I had a dream that I was in a house that I had inherited. The house itself was completely empty, but when I went down into the basement, it was stacked floor to ceiling with boxes, and I felt so overwhelmed. I was told that none of the things in the boxes were mine, but it was my job to help clean it all up. When I woke up, I knew it was a message from my ancestors that I was going to be helping clean up and clear out some of the messes that they had made. That although things looked good on the surface, there was a whole lot of baggage squirreled away down below that needed to be unpacked and removed before they could move on. I feel like that dream back in January foreshadowed what was to come this year. So here I am in December, and I found myself back in that house again in my dreams last night. This time, the main level was full of furniture and the kitchen was fully stocked. I had driven there to Idaho to help my family move out of this house. And over the course of a few days, we packed and arranged and prepared to move everything out. As we got down to the last few items, I was making trips back and forth to my car, taking the items that I wanted to bring back home with me. And when we were all done and I went back to do one final walk through the house, I stepped up onto the doorstep, turned the handle on the door, and it was locked. It was done. The house was empty, everyone was gone, and I couldn't even get back in for one last look. I peeked through the window to see a completely empty space with gleaming hardwood floors. Then I turned around and walked back to my car, full of treasures that my family had given to me to keep. I got into the driver's seat, started the car, and began the long drive back home. I'm not going to say I wasn't a little bit sad about it when I woke up. Was this my ancestors' way of saying goodbye? I spent this entire year unpacking their boxes and sorting through their stuff to figure out what was junk and what was worth keeping. And now, are we done? I know we have a few more episodes of the podcast left. We still have to follow their journey from Sweden to Utah. But it feels like we've rounded the bend unpacked the boxes they were most afraid to look into, and brought what we found up to the surface, to the light, where they could be better examined. And it was in that light that they were able to see for themselves what was hidden from them in their lifetimes, and find the peace they needed to truly move on. I'll save any further reflection for the final episode of the season, because we're not quite there yet, and who knows what else they're going to want to share in the next few weeks. But for now, let's go back to Sweden, and let's get to know these ancestors that started this journey. The ones who made the choice to leave the motherland behind for a new life on the American frontier. Now, because of the Mormon obsession with genealogy to find and baptize all of their dead relatives, we have some really detailed temple records going way, way back. Actually, I'm not sure I'm supposed to have these records. They were completed by my extended family members who are still church members, some of whom did not think non-church members should have copies of these documents. But luckily, one family member did not agree with that and agreed to share them with my parents some time ago who shared them with me when I asked what kind of documents they had. 
And these records go all the way back to 1616, when Mats Larsen was born in Fulkarna, Sweden. His wife was born in the same town 23 years later. There's no marriage date listed, so who's to say how old she was when she married a man two decades older than her? But we do know that they had eight children together, four boys and four girls, and that their six times great-granddaughter had them baptized and sealed to their future descendants in the Mormon church over 350 years later in 1970. Oh, except that missing marriage date creates an issue that doesn't allow the husband and wife to be sealed together. So I guess maybe they're not in heaven together after all. One generation after another are reflected in these records. Names, dates, and locations with a few odd notations here and there. Ola Akeson and his presumed wife Hannah, who were alive in the mid-1700s, have no marriage date on record either, and therefore also cannot be sealed together in the celestial kingdom. For some relatives, their profession is listed. One was a confectioner, specifically a sugar boiler, in the 1800s. Johns Larson was a sheriff in Fulkarna in the mid-1700s. There's even one page with very few details referencing a couple born in the late 1500s. Even with their names here in black and white, it's hard to wrap my brain around my connection to all of these generations of people going back as far as the late Renaissance years. So how were my Mormon relatives in the 1960s and 70s able to get their hands on such detailed genealogy records? The answer to that is the church. Not the Mormon church in this case, but the Church of Sweden. You see, the Reformation sparked by Martin Luther in 1525, only about a generation before the oldest records my family collected, officially split the Catholic Church in two, the Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Sweden was a Roman Catholic nation prior to the Reformation. However, King Gustav Vasa of Sweden, who was king between 1523 and 1560, had large war debts to pay, and needed money. This was his chance to get his hands on the wealth of the Catholic Church, and in 1527 he proclaimed Sweden a Protestant nation with the Lutheran Church and promptly declared himself the head of the Church, giving him access to the Church's money, property, and land. The Roman Catholic Church was now forbidden under the penalty of death. Now that the state had access to church records across the nation, the government had an accounting of exactly how many people lived in the country for tax purposes and could more easily enlist soldiers for mandatory service. In 1686, Sweden enacted a law that the Church of Sweden must keep official church records of its parish members. Since Swedish citizens were required to belong to the Lutheran Church, the Swedish church records covered the entire population of the nation. It wasn't until the 1800s that some freedom of religion was allowed in the country, you know, right around the time that the Mormon church was deploying missionaries to Europe and Scandinavia. It wasn't until 1951 that full religious freedom was guaranteed to everyone by law. And the Church of Sweden wasn't legally separated from the state until the year 2000. So yeah, Sweden has hundreds of years of detailed birth, marriage, and death records on its citizens. Now, one of the generations on paper that was pointed out to me by my ancestors is that of Karen Larson. She was also born in Fulkarna, as nearly everyone in this branch of my family tree was, in 1641. 
That made her 27 years old, married to her husband, Mats, and mother to three boys at the time that the first witch trials began in Sweden. While the Western European witch trials have been going on since about 1450, it took 200 more years for the hysteria to reach Sweden. The Swedish witch hunts were ignited by an event that took place in Aldalen in 1667. An 11-year-old girl, Gertrude Sven's daughter, and a younger boy, Mats Nilsson, were herding some goats by the river. The two had some kind of an argument, and the older girl beat up the younger boy. While they were fighting, the goats escaped and crossed the river. So after the fight, Gertrude crossed the river and fetched the goats. The boy later told his father that Gertrude was walking on the water when she crossed the river. And then he, in turn, told his local parish minister. The parish minister interrogated Gertrude several times until she confessed. She accused a neighbor's maid of taking her to the devil, and that woman became Sweden's first witch-hunting victim. Gertrude also pointed out seven other witches in her confession, and that began the witch hysteria known as the Great Noise in Sweden. A few years later, in 1674, the parish church in Torsiker executed one-fifth of their entire parish as witches. The parish minister and his assistants saw themselves as the chosen ones to fight the devil, and they weren't going to leave any stone unturned in their search. Now, Torsiker is only about 40 kilometers away from Fulkarna, where my ancestors lived. So they certainly would have known and heard and probably lived in fear of what was happening in the next parish over. In fact, the president of the Witchcraft Commission in Sweden had sent letters to every parish minister that year, ordering them to begin investigations and interrogations of their members. Every suspected witch was to be reported. Under that directive, I have no doubt that my ancestor Karen would have been questioned. How was she able to prove her innocence? Did she just get lucky? Or perhaps her children refused to point the finger in her direction, which is what happened in many cases of the accused. To save the souls of the witches and spare them from the eternal fire of hell, it was necessary to get them to confess. Most parish ministers believed that torture was necessary to accomplish that goal. Torture of both the accused and the potential witnesses. Now, it was common to use the children of the accused women as witnesses, and I'm sure it only took the threat of violence and damnation of their souls by their ministers to get them to tell the tales of their mothers, the witches. Were Karen's children interrogated or tortured? By 1674, she'd had six children, although only two were living. Her oldest, Lars, would have been 13 at the time, and the youngest was only one. So it would have come down to Karen's husband, Mats, and her 13-year-old son to either accuse or protect her possibly under torturous conditions. I connected with Karen in spirit and asked if there was anything she wanted to tell me about this period of time, and she just kind of waved me off, saying it was in the past, and she didn't want to discuss it. She just showed me an image of her family of four huddled together, hugging each other tightly. And while she may not have wanted to talk about this period in time, she certainly wanted me to know about it, because I'd never done any research on Swedish witch trials or given them a second thought, really. But in the first week of October, when my husband and I boarded a plane in Montana to fly to Nebraska to see my parents, 
The little TV mounted on the seat in front of me was on the classic movie channel, unlike the other seats around me that I could see. It was very early in the morning, and I was tired, and I wanted to close my eyes and rest rather than watch TV, so I didn't even take my headphones out. But the black and white movie playing inches in front of me turned out to be a silent horror film made in Sweden in 1922. With dramatic scenes followed by screens of text explaining what was happening. So I started following along, and it didn't take me long to figure out what I was watching. It was a movie called Hoxan, or The Witch, and it was all about the Swedish witch hunts. I mean, it's just no coincidence. Weeks before I was about to launch this season of the podcast, as I was organizing my notes and wrapping up the last bits of reading and research, I just happened to sit in an airline seat on a two-hour flight to Denver with this Swedish movie playing that had English subtitles. (laughs) And it's quite the movie. The 1922 portrayal of the devil and his witch orgies make it worth watching alone. You can watch it on YouTube if you're interested. I'll add a link in the show notes. But what's interesting is that it's not just a dramatic retelling of history. At the end of the movie, the movie's creator offers a kind of commentary on this period of time, demonstrating a variety of different torture devices that were used to extract confessions and suggesting that many behaviors that would have been deemed witchcraft at the time may have been mental or psychological disorders that weren't understood at the time. He ends the movie by saying, We may no longer burn our old and poor, but do they not often suffer bitterly? My ancestor Karen definitely wanted me to know about this, even if she didn't want to chat about it. As I later read the details about the Torcaser witch trials and plotted the locations on a map to understand where things were happening in relation to Karen and her family's home, I realized how close it had really been. A total of 71 people, 65 women, two men, and four boys were sentenced to death for witchcraft in this one trial. On the morning of June 1st, 1675, those sentenced were offered a holy communion in the church. Apparently, that was when they realized they were about to be executed. After the church service, all 71 people were forced on a long, difficult march to a mountain, now referred to as Witch Mountain or Bonfire Mountain, where they were beheaded and then burned. This group of condemned people would have marched right through Karen's village. I can imagine that everyone would have come out of their homes to see this horrible procession. What a senseless tragedy for the people of this region. One in five women between the ages of 18 and 70 were executed in this one trial. If it wasn't your head on the chopping block, a friend or family member most certainly was. Even the assistant minister's mother and aunt were accused and executed. I have to imagine that Karen, her family, and the others who lived through that time would have held on to those painful memories for the rest of their lives. And certainly told the tales to their children and grandchildren, who may have passed the stories down for another generation or two before they were lost to time. I have no doubt that if they weren't afraid of the church before that time, they certainly were by the end of that trial. I'm sure the survivors understood the importance of being pious and devout children of a Christian God from here on out, and probably followed church regulations to a T, even after the hysteria calmed down. 
And so 112 years passed between Karen's death in 1727 at the age of 86 and the birth of Nils Magnus Jonasson in 1839. Nils and his wife Maria were my ancestors who sailed to America, although it appears they each left alone and under differing circumstances. So what happened in Sweden in that century between the end of the witch trials and the beginning of the mass immigration to the United States? Well, quite a lot, as you might imagine. In Karen's lifetime, she and her family would have lived in a farming village like we discussed last week, participating in a more communal effort to grow food and protect each other. Every villager would have been allocated a share in the fields to farm, and all of the farmhouses were then grouped together in a village setting. However, the villager might have a whole bunch of small plots scattered across the countryside, and you might have to go through one of your neighbor's fields to get to your own. For that reason, planting, tending, and harvesting all had to be coordinated, so you weren't trampling through each other's still-growing crops to harvest your own. It wasn't exactly efficient. So in 1749, the Swedish parliament passed an act to attempt to modernize farming and improve yields. Karen's grandchildren would have experienced a massive upheaval in their farming system that had been in place since the Middle Ages. The government attempted to gather all of the farmers' holdings together into single plots, which required them to assess all of the farmland for its value and then redistribute it as fairly as possible. As you can imagine, this wasn't exactly a popular idea, and so it was never fully implemented. So about 40 years later, one baron divided all of his land into square plots and then had each farmer's house in the village relocated to the land assigned to him. This idea seemed to catch on, and finally, by the mid-1800s, around the time that Nils was born, it was being implemented across the country. Farmers were reimbursed for the cost to tear down their homes and other buildings in the villages and rebuild them on their newly assigned plots of land in the countryside. Villages hundreds of years old were literally erased from the map as they were dismantled and relocated. Along with that village way of life, farmers were now isolated to their own plot of land, with long distances to reach their former neighbors and extended families. Never mind being assigned new pieces of land to farm. Whatever historical knowledge each farmer held about his own fields and how to tend that particular plot of land had to be forgotten and a new place had to be learned. And so throughout the late 1600s and early 1700s, there were multiple crop failures leading to large-scale famine in the country. Early frosts, hard winters, too much rain in the summer or not enough led to hundreds of thousands of people and cattle dying and could even result in a lack of seed to collect in the fall to plant the following year's crops. There were also regular disease outbreaks every few years, including dysentery that killed 75,000 people in the first half of the 1800s, smallpox in the late 1700s that killed a quarter of a million people across the country, nine cholera outbreaks between 1834 and 1873, and by the 1870s it was tuberculosis that was wiping out tens of thousands of people. It's a wonder any of our ancestors lived long enough to produce another generation at all. So when you begin putting all of the pieces together, the forced servitude we talked about last week for a large segment of the population, upheaval in farming systems, famine and disease, 
Is it any wonder people were eager to get the heck out of wherever they were and go somewhere new? Between 1850 and 1930, 1.2 million Swedes left their homeland for North America. What was happening during that time? Well, first of all, there was a population boom in Sweden. The country's last war ended in 1814, and a long period of peace followed, which meant less of the population was getting killed in military service each year. Then the first smallpox vaccines were rolled out in 1801, significantly reducing the death rate from that disease. And finally, the potato was introduced to the area, meaning more calories and vitamins to strengthen immune systems. In a hundred years' time, the Swedish population doubled. Things were probably starting to feel a whole lot more crowded than they ever had before. Now, there was another huge change in the culture happening in the mid-1800s. The Industrial Revolution. Steam engines could now power mills where it was most convenient to have them, rather than only along rivers for their water power. Steam power also made it possible to travel longer distances, either on the railroad or steamer ships. All of these innovations created new industries that needed a labor force that hadn't existed outside of agricultural labor up to this point. And in the village structure, everyone in the community was cared for. When the land was redistributed and the farmers moved onto their plots, there was a decent segment of the population who now had nowhere to go. So people began moving to the cities for work. Now, I don't know all that much about Nils and Maria's lives in Sweden. It's hard to say if they were farmers or servants or laborers leading up to their departure from the country. But as far as I can tell, the two of them didn't meet until arriving in the States. Maria was married in Sweden at the age of 19 and gave birth to a daughter seven months later. Her daughter died at the age of two, and there seems to be no record of what happened to her husband. But she left Sweden a number of years later. At the age of 30, she traveled to Liverpool, England to book passage on the Britannic, arriving in New York City in October of 1878. Nils had already left Sweden nearly a decade before in 1869 also traveling alone to America at the age of 40. He too had a previous marriage and two children that did not leave Sweden with him either. His immigration documents say that he was a shoemaker, and there is an anecdotal story in the family that he worked in Chicago for a time before going to Utah. It's unclear when he converted to the Mormon faith, since the records show him getting baptized only after he marries Maria. But he and Maria were married in Salt Lake City only five months after her arrival in New York. So how and when they met is unclear. Many Mormon pioneers in those days made the journey slowly over a handful of years, saving up money for the next portion of the trip, which is what Nils may have been doing in Chicago. But on the other hand, he hadn't been baptized before arriving in Utah. So I can imagine that they may have had a friend or family member back in common in Sweden who may have connected them via letters. They grew up in towns right next to each other, so certainly they would have had some friends or acquaintances in common. She would have wanted to come to Zion, and he would have been halfway there already. Perhaps they fell in love as pen pals, and he sponsored her travel to America, agreeing to convert to the faith to marry her. I guess we'll never know for sure. Or maybe she'll pop into my dreams and tell me more. That being said, 
They both left Sweden before the Book of Mormon was translated into Swedish. However, Mormon missionaries had been in Scandinavia since 1850. There was one Swedish convert in the early days of the church in the United States, and when a Scandinavian mission was organized, he petitioned to be sent. He went back to his hometown, which was less than 100 kilometers from where my ancestors lived at the time. He found his brother dying from tuberculosis, and so he told him about the priesthood, anointed him with oils, and gave him a blessing, after which he recovered completely. So you're probably not surprised to know that that sick man, now restored to health, became the first LDS convert in Sweden. It wasn't long, though, before the Swedish church and government caught up with the missionary, arrested him, and kicked him out of country. But the Mormons persisted and continued sending missionaries who also continued to be deported. But after the treatment that Joseph Smith and the church members had experienced over the prior 20 years in the United States, this probably felt like a walk in the park. However, as people converted to the faith, they were encouraged to immigrate to Utah, since the religion wasn't particularly welcomed in Sweden. Furthermore, the commandment came from Brigham Young in 1855 that said, Let all saints who can gather up for Zion, and come while the way is open before them. Let the poor also come. Let them come on foot, with handcarts or wheelbarrows. Let them gird up their loins and walk through, and nothing shall hinder or stay them. It was clear that if you joined the faith, you were expected to find your way to Utah, even if you had to walk, which many pioneers happily agreed to do. Now, both Nils and Maria's neighboring towns had Mormon branches established in 1853, when they were both still children, so they were likely well acquainted with the promises of the religion long before they could read the Book of Mormon for themselves. Maria was baptized in the church at the age of 17. Her parents weren't baptized until a few years after their daughter immigrated to Utah. And once I looked at the records a bit closer, I realized that her mother was baptized 12 years after she died, likely once Maria had access to the temple in Salt Lake to baptize the dead. Her father died on May 22, 1889, and on the 11th of June, he was baptized. Barely enough time for a letter to reach Utah from Sweden in those days to inform Maria of his death. She must have gone straight to the temple for his proxy baptism to make sure he ended up in the celestial kingdom with her mother. Of her nine other siblings, she had an older sister and a younger brother who were baptized in the church in the years after she was, and a few more she baptized after their deaths in the Salt Lake Temple. There's little documentation on her first husband, but if she married him at 19, two years after joining the church and already pregnant, it's highly likely he was also a member. He was also 15 years older than her, so it's unclear if there was a bit of a scandal here. Was there abuse or polygamy? Did her parents object? Or was she being sweet-talked by a Swedish Joseph Smith type telling her that God told him that they needed to be together? I mean, polygamy was definitely being practiced in the church in Utah at this point. Joseph Smith had received the revelation in 1843 that said, if any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first to give her consent, and if he espouse the second and they are virgins and have vowed to no other man, then he is justified. He cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him. For he cannot commit adultery with that that belongeth to him and no one else. And if he have ten virgins given to him by this law, he cannot commit adultery, 
for they belong to him, and they are given to him, therefore he is justified. But if one or either of the ten virgins, after she is espoused, shall be with another man, she has committed adultery, and shall be destroyed, for they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth, according to my commandment, and to fulfill the promise which was given by my father before the foundation of the world, and for their exaltation in the eternal worlds, that they may bear the souls of men, for herein is the work my father continued, that he may be glorified. So, if you break this down, the doctrine of the church starting in 1843 was that a man can marry as many virgins as he wanted and not commit adultery. But if a woman wants to take another man, God will destroy her. So I guess it's not that big of a stretch to imagine 17-year-old Maria going to the Mormon church in her little Swedish town by herself every Sunday, since she was the only convert in her family those first few years. And a 34-year-old set his sights on her as his next virgin to replenish the earth with. Maybe they flirted or danced around the topic for a while, but eventually she ended up pregnant and very quickly married off, only to have him disappear not long after. In fact, given the detailed genealogy records in Sweden from that time, I find it odd that this man's name, her first husband, is nowhere to be found except in two places, the birth and death certificate of their daughter. So did they use a fake name for him to cover up the fact that this was a polygamous marriage? Hard to say, but he's nowhere to be found on paper after their daughter dies at the age of two. Regardless of the circumstances, her faith seemed unshakable in the years to come. Somehow or another, she got herself to Utah, married her second husband, Nils, dutifully carried out her temple work, and had four more children before passing away in 1889 at the age of 41. And although Nils and Maria certainly lived on the edge of the American frontier in the 1880s, the Industrial Revolution had already changed the pace of life in much of what you might consider the civilized parts of the world. By the time they arrived in New York by ship, they would have been able to take the train straight to Salt Lake City. Although I'm sure it was still an arduous trip from Sweden to Utah, it was hardly the same experience the early pioneers had endured with covered wagons and handcarts. The first Mormons reached the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, so a full 30 years of settlers preceded Nils and Maria's arrival. In that time, Brigham Young had created towns and colonized land in every direction, including all of Utah, most of southern Idaho, the southwestern corner of Wyoming, a strip of western Colorado, the northwestern corner of New Mexico, much of northern and central Arizona, and the eastern third of Nevada. By the time my ancestors arrived, Salt Lake City was the bustling center of the Mormon Empire, and the Perpetual Immigration Fund was paying for thousands of new immigrants to make their way to Utah from Europe to populate the church's new towns all over the Intermountain West. When Mormon missionaries visited European and Scandinavian towns, it was a pretty easy sell to people living in destitute situations, working in mills and manufacturing, rather than the bucolic rural communities as their grandparents had. The missionaries talked of the valleys among the mountains where the godless were not, where each man received according to his labor, and where communities of saints were cooperating to build the kingdom. As Wallace Stegner points out in his book Mormon Country, money was a problem. Most of the conversions were made among the poor, and 
Though the richer brethren of the foreign mission were put under heavy contribution, they could do little to pay the expenses of hundreds and thousands of immigrants. To help those unable to pay their own way and to hasten their arrival in Zion, Brigham organized the Perpetual Immigration Company, whose funds gained partly from tithes and contributions and partly from legally earmarked sources as the fines from the stray pound and a percentage of the take from ferry concessions were loaned to foreign converts on the agreement that they would be paid back after the settlement of the newcomers in the West. So yeah, basically the church paid their way, but then they were in debt to the church until they could pay it back. Stegner noted that there was little the member had to do for their journey other than be present. He said that he was ushered on board, made a member of the company, sometimes by baptism, freighted across to an American port, and then taken to whatever stop was needed to get him to Utah. And that is when the new immigrant's contribution to the church began. Although the church was happy to dole out land to all of these new arrivals, Brigham Young insisted that no man should own more land than he could personally cultivate. So the original plots handed out to settlers were rarely more than 20 acres. The Great Basin, when the settlers arrived, was dry, hot, and lacking in trees. It was covered in sagebrush and inhabited by jackrabbits, rattlesnakes, tarantulas, and horned toads. Its rivers ran nowhere but into the ground. The lakes were salty or brackish, and rainfall was negligible. In short, it was land no other settlers wanted. Stegner said, If you are a Mormon waiting for the trump of the last days while you labor in building the kingdom, you can be excused for expecting those last days will come any time now. The world is dead and disintegrating before your eyes. It's hard to say what Nils and Maria thought when they first laid their eyes on the Great Basin. Was this the same mountain valley they'd imagined in their dreams when they decided to leave Sweden? It didn't matter now. Their fate was sealed. They'd arrived in Zion and were willing to do what was needed to get settled and contribute to the cause. We'll talk next week about the communities the Mormon pioneers settled into and what life was like for those early Utah settlers. So thanks for listening this week. And thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.